Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to episode 49 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, except, Aaron, where are you tonight? You're somewhere different. Yes, I'm uh, in a Marriott in Brooklyn, New York tonight. I, I got a customer I got to go see tomorrow and flew up today, and I'm feeling a lot better than I did last episode. All right, good. So, you know, we talk all the time about all these new cloud services. So, you know, OpenStack and Amazon's cloud and Google's new cloud and Microsoft's new cloud, you know, all this new stuff going on. And, and sometimes we kind of forget about, you know, what happens behind the scenes, right? The heavy lifting that, that has to take place, you know. Uh, how to provision infrastructure, applications, policy. And, and we tend a lot of times to throw around automation as a buzzword pretty loosey-goosey, right? Sometimes we, we sort of forget how, how challenging it can be. So tonight we thought we'd, uh, we'd really dig into it with, some, with uh, a guest who not only is uh, local here to Raleigh, which I think is the first time Aaron and I have ever had a, a guest in a year and a half from Raleigh, but really, really knows this space. So um, really excited to have Brett Adam, uh, CTO and VP of Engineering from RPATH on the show. Brett, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me uh, on board to, to talk about this stuff. Yeah, so you know, you and I have known each other for a little while. Um, you know, for folks that don't know our path or you know don't know what you're working on, give us a little bit of background of you know yourself, where you came from, and, and a little bit of the our path history, how you guys got to where you are. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so my own background is just years and years and years of enterprise software, both at the application tier, you know, JWE as we now call it for many years, business process automation, uh, you know, everything uh, in, in the kind of middle tier space there. And then with our path here, the last six and a half years now, uh, it's been very much down at the sort of platform layer, the operating system layer, and you know, really focused on the sort of question at how do you put software on a box is kind of what it boils down to. Yep. Um, the company started just about seven and a bit years ago um, with essentially some of the smart guys from uh, Red Hat. Okay. Uh, that's actually why we're in Raleigh, who you know, had solved the problem at Red Hat of how do you package up an operating system? You know, how do you distribute thousands of software components that you kind of sourced from all over the place? Right. Well, you know, they invented RPM along the way um, and decided that you needed to solve the problem not just for individual software packages, but for whole systems, for whole servers. And that's actually what they set out to do here at RPATH, and, and that's pretty much what we focused on. That's where we've stayed, you know, really fixated on on that problem. Okay. So you guys, so, I, you, you know, these days folks... The, the automation discussion sometimes is, is all over the place, right? You, sure. uh, you know... Folks may want to talk now about, you know, uh, virtualizing, automating networks has kind of become a buzzword. And some folks want to take this huge view like a BMC and, you know, they, they think they can kind of automate the whole world. You guys tend to be very, very uh, focused on the application. I know one of your taglines is always like, well, clouds are great, but, but really people care about applications. How do you get the applications there? Yeah. What, talk, what's, what's unique? I mean, from... Because your guys, your architecture is kind of unique. Your your viewpoint, your focus. What's where do you where do you where does the discussion go when you're talking about automating applications? What's what's critical in that space? Yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting that you put the application spin on it, and I, I do that a lot, right? Because, um, for example, being at VMworld last year, 
all these vendors selling you all sorts of fantastic infrastructure. But as I've been saying for a while now, you know, channeling kind of the Clinton campaign of the 90s, you know, it's, it's the app, stupid. I mean, that's what the business cares about. You need the infrastructure, but the business doesn't really care about the infrastructure. And so, yeah, we, we've been very focused on, well, what about the software stack that has to go on the virtual machine or the cloud instance, you know, whatever it might be? What about that software stack? How does that get there? How does it get updated? How does it get maintained? Because without that stack of software, then deploying an app, you know, is itself going to be fraught with time, cost, and difficulty. So we sort of came at it bottom up. Um, we actually said, you know, we've got to get operating systems on the box. We've got to be able to then get middleware on the box. And that means, yeah, we've got to be able to put applications on the box um, because that's what the business cares about. Um, right. So we are different in that we've always focused on, if you will, everything inside the machine, the virtual machine or the, or the physical machine. We've always focused on what's inside the box, whereas a lot of other players in this kind of broad data center automation, now, of course, the cloud sort of automation space, have been very focused on the infrastructure around the box. You know, the networks, as you say, the storage. We've always been focused on what's inside. And okay. That is a little different from a lot of other folks out there. That's true. Well, and, it, and it's hard. I, I think it's hard sometimes for, for folks maybe that, you know, unlike yourself, kind of haven't come up in this space, right? Maybe they're coming from the infrastructure side of things. Maybe they kind of fancy themselves as a virtualization person. And, mm -hmm. and there are things that are, you know, in there to try and automate those as well. Um, so before we get kind of too far, uh, you know, astray of, of, you know, what's, what's uh, automating this part of it or automating that part, there's a certain amount of... Um, you know, kind of models for how people talk about automation, right? I mean, the, the original automation a lot of times was with people writing scripts, yep. right? And and that's kind of evolved. Can you, it, real quickly for folks maybe that, that don't necessarily understand the difference between, say, what the, the model that our path has uh, and, and why the maybe the pros and cons come with that versus some of the other maybe common things. Other Can you talk about maybe like model-based versus the script-based things versus recipes and, and you know, why... Uh, certain vendors make decisions or customers make decisions to pick those? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so, so the first part of the question, uh, I've often used a, sort of an, an analogy to explain what it is we mean when we talk about model-driven mm -hmm. versus scripted or runbook sort of automation. And, and the analogy I use is that, you know, I'm Australian. When I moved to Silicon Valley in early 96, I didn't know the valley at all, right? And right. And I would often, you know, have meetings up and down the valley and I'd, I'd call ahead because this is in the days before we all had, you know, mobile phones and internet on the device and everything else. And, and I would be like, all right, can you just give me your address? And inevitably people would pick up on the fact that I was foreign and say, well, where are you coming from? I'd be like, well, surely your address doesn't depend on my starting point. Um, and the, the response was, no, 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 we're, we're just trying to be helpful. Right. Um, now, you know, back then my answer was, look, I don't really know where I'm coming from. I'm probably going to get lost. I have a map, and just give me your address. I'll figure it out. Um, in Australia, people would never try and give directions. They just give you the address and leave you to, you know, kind of fend for yourself. Yep. Of course, now we'd all use a GPS, right? That, yep. that problem's been solved. In essence, the scripting and runbook automation approaches are like someone's given you directions. And as long as you follow them, and so long as you were in the right place to start with, you, you've got a shot at arriving at your destination. Um, the approach we took at our path is to say, you know, if instead 
we can create a model that describes the destination state and we can have a model that describes the starting point, then we can automatically compute the directions. We can automatically compute what has to be installed, removed, upgraded, configured. And so we sometimes talk about our approach as this almost GPS-like capability because if you get lost or if the server you're upgrading wasn't quite in the state you thought it was or maybe there's 500 of them and they're all slightly different but you're trying to get them all to the same state, having directions, you'd have to have lots of different variant directions. Um, you know, we've had some customers who literally were proud of their automation, and I had this one experience, uh, I won't name the company, a very big financial services company, who literally, after half an hour of lunch, I finally understood why I thought they were from another planet, because they were talking prior about how they had automated the production of 200 pages of PDF documentation to hand to their outsourced data center provider, who would then follow those instructions to install and configure applications and software on the box. They'd automated the production of paper instructions. Wow. And here I am talking about, no, let's automate the production of the actual server. Because <laughs> 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 that's what you really are trying to achieve here, guys. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so, you know, we, we focused on if you can describe what you want, then surely we can write code as a technology product that automatically computes the directions. So, so we often try to explain to people that, you know, unlike scripting or runbook approaches, which will automatically follow the directions you give them, we actually compute the directions. Okay. And, and that's hugely valuable when you got lots of apps, you got lots of variation, you got lots of change going on. You know, you're not dealing with like one app, even at massive scale. You're not dealing with kind of one set of variant states. You're dealing with lots of stuff. Okay. So, okay. so if I if I sort of uh, put a little bit of layman's terminology or sort of dig into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a lot of times, I mean, even, you know, especially today, you know, apps are sort of multifaceted. They've got mm -hmm. dependencies. They, they're multiple pieces that come together. The, the way you're describing it, especially when you're saying sort of we, 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 we give a start that has a state to it, and then we have a, a, a destination that sort of, you know, has some logic that tells you kind of how to get there. Does your model allow you to sort of say, look, if if some things along the way change, so for example, you know, the analogy might be, hey, I used to go this way, I take these roads, but now this highway opened up. Does does your system kind of eventually take that into consideration, or is that too much? To is that too much automation? No, we we, we do. Um, and again, I'm I'm using this sort of analogy to kind of get at the core idea. Right. Um, in essence, what we have done is allowed you to very cheaply define the entire model of a system. Every single software package, we use dependencies to automatically compute, you know, what packages you need. Uh, we allow you to model what's configurable about the system. We allow you to provide, you know, maybe the configuration uh, handlers that know how to make that config change. Uh, we know how to discover configuration of a system. So, yeah, the model's very rich in terms of the state it's describing. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's able to, I won't say adapt, because that might be the wrong concept, but it's able to compute, oh, that server is in state A, and I need to therefore do this, 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 and this to get it to state Q. That other server over there, it's in state A prime. It's a little different. 
I can automatically figure out, oh, then I have to do this and this instead to, okay. to get it to the destination. So it, it's more about being able to handle lots of diversity in the environment in an automatic fashion. Okay. And so the, the, the real sort of value differentiation that you guys have is that a lot of this logic is in this computability is, is built in that people mm-hmm. aren't necessarily having to start from scratch, write uh, scripts or recipes or whatever, but, but then they'll have some way to sort of customize to go, Hey, my, my environment is, has these variations versus absolutely. different. Okay. I got yeah, you. absolutely. And you know, if, if I were to contrast, you know, the way we've approached it to say, um, you know, chef, uh-huh. uh, open source project from Opscode. Um, Chef unabashedly admit it's a programming language, right? Yep. It's it's a set of really powerful kind of tools built on the Ruby programming language that that makes it really easy for you to more productively produce those scripts you need. Okay. okay, so you're dealing with a more powerful library effectively, but it's still you've got to write the instructions. You've, right. you've got to figure out what's got to happen. And I sat in at um, a DeployCon, I think it was, uh, listening to uh, – I know it was Velocity recently. I was listening to a gentleman from one of these startups. He was talking in detail about how they'd used uh, Chef. And, you know, man, the complexity of what they'd invented within the Chef sort of framework. It's a full-blown project. I mean, it is writing code. Yep. yep. Uh, and, and that's not really maintainable – in the face of constant change or in the face of lots of diversity. Right. Uh, right. It works in a controlled, limited kind of environment, perhaps. Okay. So yeah. n- now one of the things, um, so uh, another another friend of the show, one of the people that you work with over at Cisco, Rodrigo Flores, mm. just recently wrote sort of an interesting article. Um, and, and what he tried to do there is he, he kind of tried to come out and say, look, uh, you know, platform as a service, you know, sort of this new way of deploying applications is is starting to, you know, in the real world, kind of hitting a bifurcation, right? There's the kind of Silicon Valley style, which is, you know, very black box. Maybe it's Cloud Foundry or Heroku or something where it's, uh, yep. you know, the examples are always, you know, Netflix and Zynga and, and so on and so forth. And then he was sort of saying, you know, but but the what he believed the broader market was kind of this enterprise PaaS or enterprise yes. Yes, I, I kind of get the sense as you're as you're explaining, you know, our path versus you know, and just using um, Chef as a as a contrast, the, the skill set that maybe might exist in more of an enterprise path might be more applicable. It's it's less about writing code; it's more about sort of process and logic that that you know a lot of people can can uh, kind of wrap their head around is that is that fair or is that too too simplified yeah no no there's some good parallel there and in fact um we agree very strongly with what rodrigo started talking about um i want to come back to that but uh absolutely there's a skill set difference um there's also a sort of a difference of well what am i actually what am i to provide here and and within enterprise there are so many existing apps Right. That are, um, you know, using standard middleware stacks, you know, JBox, WebLogic, WebSphere, .NET stacks. These are things that, that are themselves somewhat tailored within the enterprise. They're not nice, clean room implementations. They're kind of messy, right? Yeah. They kind of get a lot of warts. And that's just reality of what the enterprise needs. And they don't just have one either. They've got lots of variants of this stuff. Um, and yet they've got this skill set gap, which is that, you know, they, they're not sort of Zynga-style rocket ship engineers, you know, in the IT function. Right. Um, so, yeah, what you've got is you've got this need 
to support the application portfolio the enterprise has today on the existing stacks they already have, on the platforms they already use. Right. And so one of the challenges that Rodrigo calls out by saying Silicon Valley-style paths is to say, look, if you're writing a brand-new app from scratch and you can leverage all this new PaaS architecture that's in a Heroku, for example, fantastic. Go for it. I mean, that's going to give you a whole lever that you can you know, use. But if you're in the enterprise and looking at your existing app portfolio, you can't rewrite those apps to right. use that new modern PaaS architecture. And so, yeah, he's using the term enterprise PaaS. Actually, we are too now to talk about this idea that there's a whole stack of stuff that the app depends on, which IT needs to provide, and it's really kind of messy, and it's a lot of existing kind of stuff, and they need to get better at delivering it to the business, delivering it to the dev groups, updating it and with control, and there's just all this stuff they have to take care of around the platform, and, and they can't wholesale, you know, jump to Heroku. It's, it's just not going to happen within any short time frame. Right. And and, yeah. and and realistically, you know, from a funding perspective, I, I, I doubt you're going to see very many en- enterprises, you know, quote unquote, rewriting their applications. They're going to no, they'll, they'll gonna, do it with some of them. I mean, you know, yeah. they, they definitely there's a new initiative in the mobile space, sure. uh, building a new app. Maybe they've outsourced it to their advertising agency who've contracted these boutique app dev group to do the iOS and Android client as well as the back end. Absolutely. Take yeah. advantage of PaaS as defined by, you know, quote, Silicon Valley. But the rest of the portfolio, geez, we, we've got to cut the cost of deploying this stuff and upgrading this stuff, and, yeah, we can't rewrite it. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, you, you sort of said that, uh, you know, you guys are, are also adopting the enterprise PaaS terminology. What's, yeah. what's, what's that mean in your, in your, you know, from your point of view? Yeah, so, so basically what's happened is as we've taken our capabilities into the enterprise, um, we've met more and more IT organizations, IT operations organizations who are saying, look, we're on the road to providing a private cloud, and that really is all about standardizing and scaling our infrastructure. Okay. And once we get it standardized and you know, we get some modern infrastructure that's programmable, it's got good API, good tooling, you know, we, we can scale up and scale down and, and kind of get to elastic infrastructure mm-hmm. within the enterprise. Yep. But there's this whole other axis, which is the software problem. And so what's happening is these IT organizations are being asked by development groups, et cetera, within the business to say, hey, don't just give me an empty VM on demand or storage or a network, you got to give me at least a VM with an OS on it. And I want you to patch and maintain that OS. Actually, frankly, I want you to give me the middleware stack I depend on. And I want that to be on demand. And I want you to patch and update the middleware stack. You know, not, you know, arbitrarily, I want to kind of be involved in that process. But, you know, I don't want, as a development group, to be responsible for all that stuff. Uh, You know, you should be. And the IT operations team are like, well, that's a lot of work and a lot of skills, and we don't have a good automation answer to that. Gee, I guess we'd better start looking for one. Right, right. So we're seeing a lot of these IT organizations saying, you know, we can't just provide MTVMs on demand. We've got to provide a stack of software, a platform of some description. In fact, we've got to provide a whole bunch of them if we're going to meet the business need. Yeah, it's interesting you sort of highlight that because I know – you know, as I as I would go out and talk to businesses, and I would talk to various customers, and and you know, a lot of times you you you'd get into this kind of nirvana of where things were going, and it's going to be self service, and and you got a sense sometimes where they kind of went, 
yeah, but I don't, I don't know that I truly want self-service. Like I, I like the fact that I, I don't have people telling me no, but mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know that I know how to set up a database. I don't know that I want to mess around with setting up OSs. And, and so I think what you're, you're really hitting on is kind of this, when you get below the surface of kind of the buzzwords, it's, yeah, they want, you know, the developers just want less no in their, in their request for services. And it's, it's pushing on IT to say, look, you're going to have to, a, you're going to have to step up to figure out how to do that, but but more importantly, like you're kind of highlighting, um, you you can't. There's no way they keep up with it if they have to do it on a one-off basis. They've got to get consistent. They've got to be able to automate it. They've got to be able to to manage it in a reasonable way. So they, they do. And and you know, it's funny. At the moment, I have these conversations also where sometimes the whole sort of middleware stack is kind of in no man's land. It, I'm going right. to paraphrase, but I had a, an amusing pair of conversations with a very, very large um, uh, financial institution a couple of months ago where I was talking to the IT operations side and they were talking about, well, you know, if we can deploy a web page on Apache, we've proven we can deploy apps. And I'm like, guys, (laughs) an app is way more complicated than that. They say, yeah, but, you know, from our point of view, we're done, right? Right. And then they go to the application side of the house who are really the first customer for this IT group. And I said, you know, I just had this conversation where they're like, you know, deploy a web page, they're done. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, they just don't understand the complexity of the application. Right. You know, get all those, I don't know, we have to do and, and so on. I said, but, you know, what, what do you expect them to deliver you? And so we expect them to deliver a full, you know, middleware platform and stack. And I'm like, well, they're not preparing to. They're just going to give you a VM maybe with Apache if you're lucky. Everything else you're asking for, they regard as your problem. And the application group said, no, no, that's their problem. And so... It was kind of like, well, who owns the stack of stuff in the middle? And, and kind of neither party kind of wants to yep. because it's outside their skill set or there's compliance contention or security contention or there's just so many issues. So there's a real, um, <laughs> in some cases, it's a bit like the hot potato. Nobody, nobody wants to take responsibility for the platform, but ultimately someone's going to have to. Right, right. It, it, it becomes that, that sort of age-old problem where everybody likes the output of it, but nobody wants to pay for or, or manage that, yeah, that kind of yeah, muck, that yeah. kind of muck I mean, in the middle. Years ago, um, I remember back in the days of the OMG, there was a guy called Chris Stone who was president of the OMG back in the Corba days. Mm-hmm. I was at a conference, and he asked the audience, he said, so um, anybody got a definition of middleware? And a few people you know, <laughs> tried, and he said, you know what? I'll tell you, middleware is software nobody wants to pay for. Yeah, and that exactly. was back before the rise of WebLogic and WebSphere and so on. Right. Um, now I often see this sort of, yeah, the, the stack, the, the software platform is, is kind of the software nobody wants to take responsibility for. Right, right. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily sexy. It's not necessarily visible. Um, it's going to break a lot. It needs to be updated a lot. Yeah. yeah. So, so when, I was, you know, when I was sort of uh, you know, jotting down some notes before the show and, and we were going to get into this, I, you know, one of the, one of the first questions I had planned to ask, and, but it seems to make more sense here is, so l- let's take an example, like you just talked about where, you know, the stack is this multiple layers of stuff. Uh, developers have a much different mindset than say the operations team or the infrastructure team, you know, as, as you're dealing with customers in, in, in sort of real world environments, what's the right place for automation to exist? I mean, I'm sure the answer could be a lot of places, but yeah. if you took that example you had, what's the guidance you give? Where, where's the right place for automation to exist or, or which type of automation should exist? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. Um, in general, I would say automation should exist across the board because sure. that's where we've got to get to. But the reality is that um, in larger organizations, 
there are many, many, many different application teams, okay? And they've all built their own build systems. They've got different tool sets they're using. There are some really entrenched, like, you know, almost religious divides about some of that stuff. And yet there tends to be more of a centralized IT operations group, right, coming from the infrastructure up. Um, And so it turns out we're finding it's a lot easier to have a meaningful conversation with that more centralized single point of ownership for the infrastructure and then the beginnings of the platform above it than it is to go have 50 different conversations. And in fact, a customer, recent customer of ours, um, they, we started talking to one of their application groups. They desperately wanted more automation and they'd actually built something in house. They built a lot of code, a lot of scripting, and they knew it just wasn't going to scale across their app portfolio. Um, so we started on the application side who were really saying, we've got to automate the rest of the software platform, the middleware. But what happened was that team realized that rather than them going and convincing hundreds of other application teams in the enterprise, they were better off forming an alliance with the IT group, the central group, and by saying, hey, if you guys can bring automation to bear from the OS layer and the beginnings of the middleware layer, we can collaborate with you, and then you can essentially offer that as a service to all the other application groups internally and make it so compelling because it's automated that they're going to have a really hard time saying no. And we should be able to drive a behavior change mm-hmm. across these different app teams by basically saying, look, you can go continue to do what you're doing with all that middleware and OSs by hand, or you can just push the button and get pretty much what you need in a more standard form that, by the way, will be updated and maintained for you as a service. Interesting. And so it was a really big sort of a heart moment in their own internal kind of political and sales process within the company, nothing to do with us, that they realized that the best way to drive change was to go to the IT group who were more central and drive automation from the inside out. Okay. Yeah. Now, I mean, a a lot of what what you guys, well, actually almost all of us right now in IT are are dealing with is is sort of this, uh, you know, constant of change, right? And Mm -hmm. really fast change. You know, one of the tenants that people tend to find when they're when they're able to make change work is you know they'll find a lighthouse they'll find one thing that they can kind of get changed and use it as a way to show other people is that do you find that common or do you find that you know the automation discussion tends to sort of people want to talk about the whole thing and 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 things struggle that way i mean you like the example you sort of pointed out was somewhat broad but but like you said it was kind of focused on one specific area that could kind of become a beacon for the rest of the company is that pretty common yeah, so, so um, I definitely see two modalities. I, I think we sometimes see what my colleague Sean Edmondson describes as the architecture astronauts okay. who, who basically say, yeah, we're going to automate everything. And they come up with these grand visions, these grand plans, and they buy into sometimes these big product suites that mm-hmm. promise to automate everything. And they're made up of you know 15 different products that all make different layers and different pieces of the puzzle, right? Um, the flip side is I think the guys who actually make real progress have learned a lot from the kind of agile manifesto of, you know, do incremental things, attack a problem and move on. And I know that, you know, Luke Kinise at Puppet Labs is a big advocate of this idea of, you know, pick something and fix it and then pick the next thing and fix that. The, the, the problem is a little bit that, IT's been doing that for so long, this sort mm-hmm. of patching, fixing, duct taping, that unfortunately a lot of the infrastructure we have has gotten kind of um, 
leaky and rickety and it's barely holding together in some cases. And I see a lot of that in the software kind of deployment space. Okay. Um, and so what we're seeing is folks who've been around the block and have had their fingers burned off enough and have maybe done enough of this automation homegrown at different pieces of the puzzle, they're coming to the realization that, you know what, we need a more systematic approach to this. Okay. Um, one of the most mature expressions of that I actually heard from a customer um, was this idea that we've lost control of our software supply chain. We, we don't know where our software components are coming from. We don't know who's putting what where, and it's creating compliance issues, and it's creating licensing issues. Like, we had to pay $80 million in license true-up at the end of last year because we just we'd lost control of deployment of commercially licensed components. And they were talking about this as a manufacturing problem. Um, I've talked about it that way for a long time, but this was a customer telling me they've come to realize that their IT is at such scale, it's an industrial manufacturing problem they have to solve. Interesting. I, I, and I, it I, needs a systematic approach. So I, I want to come back to that because I, I, I've heard you use that analogy and I've kind of kicked around the same analogy of you know the data center is really becoming a factory and, and you have to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I want to touch on something that you just kind of you, – you brought up about um, – about Puppet. And, and I only bring this up because a um, couple of things. One, automation, you know, tools around automation or management, um, you know, tend to over time, the companies that do this, you know, they acquire, you know, the big companies acquire smaller pieces or mm-hmm. people tend to want to put, you guys have sort of a, um, a sort of a unique uh, interaction or relationship with Puppet Labs in that you guys do package up, um, your platform with Puppet, but in, and you know you talk about if you go to the website, you guys talk about where you think Puppet makes sense versus where our path makes sense. C- can you talk for a bit about just in general, kind of where you think it makes sense to have you know certain tools get chained together versus trying to take on a lot with one set of tools? Because I think I think that sometimes. Um, you know, sets people's, you know, how they, how they look at things, you know, can this, should I look at it as this huge set of tools or, you know, do you, is it a, is it a mix of things like our path plus puppet or something like that? Yeah, I, I think, um, wow. So, so the, the way I've always thought about these sort of problems is that the design of the Unix sort of tool chain was mm-hmm. really brilliant. It was about small focused tools that work well together okay. uh, in order to solve big problems. And I think the truth is what you need is a collection of tools that are going to solve specific pieces of the overall problem space. We think of Puppet as a great sort of tool for driving runtime configuration change, right, for manipulating config files, for driving the the piece you can only know at runtime onto a system. Um, We, in some sense, think of ourselves as almost that, overall framework, that overall sort of automation architecture that can invoke Puppet at the right time or invoke a script if you really need one at the right point, but can get rid of a lot of the busy work and the manual directions and stuff you used to have to write to know which software package to install and what it depends on and and get rid of, you know, snapshotted yum repos and git repos scattered all over the place, consolidate, if you will, the common infrastructure, the common framework, the common automation machine that kind of, if you will, is kind of the common framework that, that binds Unix, you know, tools together, you know, pipes mm-hmm. and everything to file and, you know, all those good ideas. We think of ourselves that way. 
And we think of things like Puppet and Chef and, you know, other third-party technologies, uh, even pieces of the Linux tool chain that we obviously depend on or pieces of the Windows tool chain that we build on. We think of them as kind of the, the, the piece parts that you have to plug together the way we do. Okay. Um, so it's really not us versus Puppet. It's us and Puppet is a great complement to solving uh, a set of problems related to how you define systems, deploy systems, and how you configure you know, those runtime variables that, that you need to push into a file or push into an API you know, at the last mile. Yeah. And that's the role Puppet plays. And so that's why we, we actually bundle Puppet. We take the open source Puppet, we bundle it up, we package it up, we made it push button easy to use, and we've you know, provided that overall integration and architecture framework for the automation of these things. Okay, and and that's and that's kind of what I was what I was getting at is it's it's interesting to me that um, you guys make that distinction that it's you know there there's there's a certain place for certain tools there are places where there's you know when when complexity rules and it's it, the other thing that's very very interesting to me is we're seeing more and more businesses you know what are traditional IT commercial software businesses or hardware businesses that are that are starting to integrate open source software in interesting ways because they realize, okay, it makes sense for certain parts, but for other parts, we, we add unique differentiation. So I, I was interested in how you guys, how you thought about that. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, we were founded by, you know, some of Red Hat's core team, Eric Drone, you know, first engineer at Red Hat, VP of engineering through IPO, co-invented RPM. We've always open sourced our core inventions, but then okay. we wrapped a lot of value around it that we mm-hmm. don't open source. Um, we've always done that. We, our big chunks of our own technology build on big chunks of open source technology. I, that's just the way development is these days, right? Right, right. Um, and we think any customer would be crazy to try and either reinvent stuff that's perfectly good in the open source space. It's just you've got to put it all together in a yep. way that makes sense. And yep. uh, that's what we do. Yep. So... Let's let, let's sort of let's sort of finish on on one last topic, and we we touched on it just a few minutes ago, which was this idea of, you know, IT the data center is, is really almost you know for folks that are going to do well in that space, you know, sometimes in certain industries you have to look to a different industry to really find a best practice, a way to move forward, and and mm-hmm. you've been talking about you know. Uh, the, the data center automators of today really almost need to go look at what has happened in manufacturing, whether it's just in time or, uh, you know, some of the other things that took place in Japan when the automotive industry or, or something. Yep. Like, talk about what aspects of that you're starting to see or the, those principles that, that you're talking to people about. Cause I, I think that is a really interesting concept um, that people need to kind of internalize like how, manufacturing has changed, how they got modular, how they learned about shortened supply chains and, and how it sort of radically changed their world and, and where the analogies or the parallels are to, to, to uh, IT. Well, you, you just said a whole lot of stuff, I think, that is incredibly relevant to IT, yeah. Um, what is the manufacturing process? Have you standardized the components? You know, Do you have 50 different operating systems? No, we've now got you know, two or three. Um, right. You know, what are those middleware components? Um, what programming language is you using? Because you got to face it, you've got skill sets. You want them to be transferable. The guy who's learned how to, you know, screw on a right-handed screw thread, now you're making him screw on a left-handed screw thread. You know, is that really what is going to help and be productive? Or maybe you should just standardize and everything's going to be right-handed screw threads or whatever. I, I think what's happened is we've seen manufacturing start, you know, in the 90s in particular, got serious about understanding the supply chain, understanding how to manage that, 
I saw companies in the manufacturing space, and these were software companies, who said, you know, if, if we can bring information about the uh, real manufacturing assembly cost and the supply cost of different components, can bring that information into the design time so the guy designing new hardware can actually know what the implications are of picking that chip over that chip or that sub-module or whatever, we can get all sorts of efficiencies, right? We, we can really leverage our ability to manage the complexity because we've got lots and lots of knowledge and we've got increasing standardization and so on. Look at IT. We finally have pretty much all standardized on the x86 architecture, right. whereas it wasn't that long ago we had so many different chips, right, that we could have picked from. The number of operating systems is similarly kind of decreased. Um, the number of middleware stacks is, yeah, it, it's sort of gone through a little bit of a renaissance with new languages and stuff recently, but you know, enterprises have certainly tried to consolidate those and reduce the number of variations of those. I think one of the big lessons that the cloud is almost finally forcing us to just accept is that while reducing choice at first seems like a bad idea, there are so many good things that come from increasing standardization. I think cloud infrastructure is a great example of increasing standardization delivering benefit. I mean, Amazon, how many times have people said, yeah, small, medium, large, you know, those are your choices. No, you can't say I want 12 CPUs and 96 gigs of RAM. You, you get small, medium, large, right? Take your right. pick. Right. You can have that now, instantaneously. And I think we need to see the same thing happen across the software space so that developers are like, yeah, I'll take that stack. You know, I'll, Ultimately, I'll take that Silicon Valley pass because I don't need to pick and choose and tweak and roll the underlying infrastructure and the software side. Right. So I think the big lesson, what are the standardization choices we should make and how does that then enable us to streamline the process, automate the process, plug and play you know, across the activity? That's a really big driver. And I think we're seeing more and more large enterprises start to go, yeah, we really need to push harder on standardizing and automating on the back of it. Very good. Very good. Now, um, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up because, you know, like we always say, we sort of hit a, a, a window uh, from time. Uh, real quick, though, in, in that same vein, you guys, uh, VMworld's coming up. You know, we, yep. we're about two or three weeks away from VMworld out in San Francisco. Um, you guys are going to be talking about a, a new sort of suite of technologies uh, at, at VMworld. Can you, without giving everything away, can you give us a hint uh, as to what you might be announcing or talking about? Yeah, actually, it's less a suite of technologies and more um, a distillation of a lot of what we've learned talking to customers, talking to prospects, working with our partners like Cisco. Um, it's a real distillation of that into something that we're kind of calling the, the enterprise cloud adoption framework. And it's, it's really uh, an effort to provide guidance to IT about some of the different paths you can take through this sort of, you know, software standardization, automation space, infrastructure standardization, automation space in order to try and get to an enterprise cloud. So it's less technology and it's more here's a frame of reference, here's a way to think about your choices, um, which moves do you want to make? And, yeah, we're, we're um, actually partnered with Cisco. We're, we're launching it at uh, VMworld in, a, in an off-site but associated event okay. uh, on the Tuesday, I think, the 28th. And, and there's an invitation on our website you can you know, fill in if you want to come check it out. We're, we're hosting it at a very, very cool venue in South San Francisco, Soma area. Nice. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a chance to kind of get a conversation going about... Okay. How do you attack these sort of challenges within within the large enterprise? Okay, and then if, if for some reason folks uh, 
can't attend that, will you guys be talking about it, uh, you know, in the booth afterwards? Or is oh, that sure. yeah, yeah, and and you'll see that there'll be a lot more stuff. We blog about it, and it'll be up on the website. And uh, in fact, a lot of uh, Rodrigo's uh, kind of thinking has been woven into some of this too. So yeah, it, it, it's a sort of a. In fact, we'd really like it to get more and more people collaborating around elaborating the framework because we think it's got some some clarity that it can offer, and it, it needs some some contribution. Yeah. Okay. Well, very, very cool. So uh, some community opportunities there, some some opportunity for folks to not only get out and meet you guys and Rodrigo and all, but but kind of offer their input and, and, and definitely learn some stuff. So, well, very, very cool. Well, uh, Brett, before we uh, sign off, um, for folks that want to learn more about, you know, application automation or our path, what's the best place to either kind of keep, catch up with you or, or learn more about our path? Yeah, I mean, all the usual channels these days. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm on Twitter. There's an R path Twitter. Um, we obviously have, you know, pretty active blogging activity okay. we have. Uh, so a lot of different ways to do that. Um, but, you know, people can always just direct message me on Twitter. I'm, I'm actually quite often now finding people saying, hey, um, I'm thinking about X. You know, do you have an opinion? I'm like, sure. <laughs> I'm, happy. <laughs> I'm happy to talk. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty easy to get a hold of us these days for sure. Okay. Very, very cool. Well, listen, folks, uh, we are out of time for this week. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for, for the time and for coming on. I think Aaron may have gotten mugged out in Brooklyn tonight, so uh, he, <laughs> sure. uh, he eventually dropped off. But uh, So, folks, um, as always, if you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, you can follow us, as we always say, on all the, on all the uh, social media links at the CloudCastNet or on the CloudCast.net website. So uh, for Brett and for Aaron, if he's still on, on somewhere, uh, thank you very much for listening and, and have a great night. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron.